as has already been mentioned, I know how grateful we each are to have been given the measure of health that we have, that we have been able to assemble this evening. I know there are many who continue to be ill, who continue to experience health challenges, and many of them would certainly love to be with us but are unable to be in that condition with us tonight, and we certainly wish to continue to remember each of them. As you well know, as we mentioned this morning, we've come to the 53rd worship occasion on a Sunday this particular year in terms of our evening service, and we're thankful to be able to look at questions and answers again tonight. We try to do this once a month, and this is the 12th installment for the, the year 2023. And as always, you're the ones that, that, that select the questions, the ones that direct us in light of these particular opportunities for, for these services at least. And that will continue next year, so may I go ahead and invite you. As usual, feel free to anonymously provide a question, put it in that box out there just inside the, the outside door, and be happy to consider that in due course at the particular times, uh, certainly next year. The next one will come near the end of the month of January. Tonight, each one of the questions surround translations of the Bible. So I'll go ahead and just give you an indication that all the questions supplied in one way or another a touch upon or at least surround the question of Bible translations. At this point, this opening uh, introductory slide highlights for us again that there's a great value in the Bible to questions as well as the answers that God provides. In texts such as Acts 15, verse number 2, for example, we're reminded that there the early church went to Jerusalem in order to ask questions of the apostles. And so notice, they had a particular matter resting on their mind and they wished to have it answered. Well, again, we try to do that here using the Bible to provide us the answers to those questions which, in fact, you, you, you have, have taken the liberty to ask. Here's the first question of the evening. Were there other Bible translations or versions written before the King James Version of 1611? Again, the question is, having to do with the occurrence of translations of the Bible, was the King James Version the earliest one? Or were there other translations prior to that one? In order to answer that, at least appropriately, I thought it might do us well to perhaps fill in a bit more history just so that the answer though we could just say, for instance, the answer is no or yes, as the case may be. But a little bit of background, I think, would be helpful. And so on that slide, could I point out again the original languages in which the Holy Bible was presented? The Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew. There are a few small Aramaic sections, but most of the Old Testament is Hebrew. On the other hand, the New Testament is written in Greek, all of it at least in the original presentation. That easily means that translations are a necessary, a very important thing because so many people don't speak Aramaic, can't read Greek, can't read Hebrew. And that likely is each one of us as well. And so aren't we thankful for an English translation of the Bible? But may I point out that on that particular slide, to step back a little further in history, can I point out that the idea of a translation is really an old idea, a very ancient one. So much so that could I draw your attention to the Septuagint translation that was completed in the 3rd century B.C. Now again, that was long before the New Testament scriptures were written. But what it was, again, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But the time came when there was a great need 
for the Old Testament Scriptures in some language other than Hebrew because the people had themselves become acquainted with and lived with other languages, and so they spoke other languages. After Alexander the Great's conquest, in which he spread Greek language throughout the world, there came a time when the translation of the Old Testament Scriptures from Hebrew into Greek took place, and that's the Septuagint. That was such a very important and influential document. It began to have a great deal of influence. In fact, it is the translation from which our Savior and the other New Testament writers most often quoted. So again, that's an interesting thing. They gave full allegiance to and full approval of the occurrence of translations. However, that certainly wasn't the only one. Maybe you've heard of the Peshitta. That was a translation of the original text of Hebrew and Greek into Syriac. It occurred near the end of the first century A.D. It too turned out to be exceedingly influential, but notice again, the Syriac language is not Greek, it's not Aramaic, it's not Hebrew. There was certainly a great need thus at that time for those very powerful scriptures to be in Syriac, and so the Peshitta was in fact generated. St. Jerome translated the ancient text into Latin in 404 A.D. And the Latin Vulgate, again, turned out to be a very influential translation. Notice again, Latin was the language the Roman Empire primarily spoke. And so again, although Greek was well known, and so too was Aramaic, it turns out St. Jerome's translation was a very influential thing for well over a thousand years. Martin Luther, I'm sure you've heard of that name. He translated the scriptures into German. He completed the New Testament in 1522. He completed the entire Bible 12 years later. But again, you can well imagine a German translation of the Bible would be very needful for German-speaking people. And yet Martin Luther, himself German, in fact completed that as you can see on that slide. So the idea of a translation is again a well-founded one. But I suspect that the way the question was worded that the person had in mind English translations, not German, not Syriac, not, not others. So what about English translations of the Bible? Was the King James Version the first one? No, it wasn't. In fact, I've tried to find what the oldest one I have been able to find. So if someone knows of older ones, please by all means share that with me. But the work of John Wycliffe, he completed an English translation of the Bible in 1384. As you can well tell, compared to 1611, that was 230 years before the King James translation of 1611. Now, that one that Wycliffe produced in, in, in uh, English, you might take note that he used the Latin Vulgate, the one produced by St. Jerome, as the basis. So he didn't go back, if you please, to the original Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew. He worked off of the Latin Vulgate. But still, it turned out that English translation was greatly needed by the people of Europe because they spoke English by and large, or at least were rather acquainted with it. But even that's not the only one we might mention. I've asked you to notice the work of William Tyndale. Tyndale lived a little bit of time after the time of John Wycliffe. You notice in 1534, he completed a translation of the Bible into English, but he did not rely upon the Latin Vulgate. 
He went back and took it directly from the original Greek as well as Hebrew. And it turned out that that Tyndale presentation was incredibly influential for reasons that we're about to see in just a few moments. I did interject a little bit of history, though, along the way, because you and I are easy to forget this. The translations of the Bible that you and I can so readily obtain, they couldn't. The printing press had not yet been developed. The printing press, again, at least in the work of John Wycliffe, that had not been brought into reality, hadn't been invented yet. And therefore, the translations had to be produced by hand at that time. Can you imagine the slow and arduous process of somebody writing by hand, going from Hebrew into English or from Greek into English? And yet, that's the way it had to be done prior to the invention of the printing press. Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1455. And so you might notice the work of Tyndale came a little bit after that, and so it was possible to utilize a printing press to aid in this one. Surely, though, it's intriguing to notice there were authorities that greatly opposed the common people having access to the Bible. You might want to think about that. To us, that seems foreign. In fact, our Constitution says that there's a freedom connected to religion. But that hasn't always been true in our country even. You might well imagine here there was a time when there were authorities who did not want people to have access to the Bible. They thought the church leaders were the only ones that needed access to that. And so the officials at the church had it, but they didn't want the common people to have access to the Bible. And so the Catholic authorities persecuted William Tyndale intensely. Interestingly enough, he came to live in Antwerp, which is a city in northwestern Europe, and the Catholics did not control Antwerp. And so as long as he was there, he was free. He could not be touched or at least persecuted by them, but a plan was concocted. And so the Catholic authorities kidnapped him and took him from Antwerp into places they did control. And as you can see on the slide... They strangled him and burned him at the stake. That's how much they did not want the common people to have access to what you and I treasure, what we honor and love so much. One last thing on that slide would be the work of Miles Coverdale. He also generated an English translation in 1535, just a very short time after the work of William Tyndale. It's fair to say that the translations now with the printing press in order are going to become more prominent. You may notice that John Rogers, working under the pseudonym of Thomas Matthew, generated the famous Matthew's Bible in 1537. Notice there's three translations in the span of just a very few years. The Great Bible of 1539, it too occupied a significant role because of what it was going to influence shortly thereafter. Miles Coverdale, together with Richard Grafton, also worked the production of that one. The Geneva Bible of 1560, named, as you could well imagine, from that city in Switzerland. It came to be, as we'll see shortly, a tremendous source of a bit of controversy. I could also mention that that Geneva Bible was blessed in that it separated the Scriptures into verses. 
Now, you and I have never seen it any other way. But can you imagine how much more difficult it would be to commit certain passages to memory or to find out where you were if all you had was all the text written right next to one another without any separation in verses? The Geneva Bible was the first English translation that was presented having that separation into verses. One other thing I might point out, the presentation of the Geneva Bible, it was smaller in terms of size, and therefore it was more affordable. A common person could have a Bible now because it could be afforded. The last one I'll mention before we get to the King James translation is the Bishop's Bible of 1568. This one was particularly produced with a desire that the bishops would be the ones that would have access. It was written for the scholars. It wasn't written for a common person like you or me. It was expected the scholars would benefit, and so they're the ones that were intended to make use of it and to have it. At this point, the following problem arose. When James became king of England, one of the things that was readily put upon his plate was this. The common people loved the Geneva Bible. It was affordable. It was accessible. They could read it in the English language and be blessed by what it said. On the other hand, the church officials used the Bishop's Bible, and the two didn't agree. There were discrepancies between them. And so one of the first orders of business brought before the king was, we need a uniform Bible. One that everybody can use, both the bishops, the church officials, if you will, as well as the common people. And thus, King James made the following commission. He commissioned 53 people, the finest scholars in Hebrew and Greek of the day, to produce a Bible that everyone could agree on. Not only the common people, but the scholars and the bishops as well. And in fact, he gave order that the finest scholars in the kingdom were to be employed in the production of this translation into English. I mentioned there were 53 that were originally selected. Of that number, 47 lived up to the task, and they produced what turned out to be the most influential English version of the Bible there has ever been. You may well hold one in your lap. The King James Translation of 1611. That particular translation, I'll freely admit, if you've ever read part of the original, the wording, the way that things were spelled back then is different than, than, than right now. And you and I might be puzzled about some of the way it appears. But needless to say, it had a prose, it had a poetic presentation that has clenched the souls of people ever since it was produced. You and I today perhaps still greatly adore it. That King James translation was a tremendous influential thing for hundreds of years. It would not really be until the later part of the 1800s when finally a revision of that translation came about. The King James translation has lived on in the hearts and minds of many people. Is it the best translation in English? No, it's not. But in terms of influence worldwide, I don't think anything can rival it. Can you imagine the number of souls that have been impacted by the King James translation who have appreciated his presentation and learned the plan of salvation and the God of heaven by virtue of it? The question that we were addressing was, was the King James translation the first English translation? No, it wasn't.
Was it the most influential? Almost certainly it was. It is with that said, what about question number two? What about another question connected to translations? Do the original Bible documents still exist? If so, where are they? We began this lesson tonight by noting that the original scriptures as given by God were in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Is there some library somewhere in the world that still has those original documents written by Moses? Those original documents written by Jeremiah or Ezra or Paul or Peter? That's a great question. In fact, you've, you may have already noticed beginning at the top of this slide, the answer comes quickly. The original autographs do not still exist. We don't have them anywhere. That immediately may cause us to wonder, then what about this Bible we do have? How trustworthy is it? Is it comparable to those scriptures as they were originally given to Jeremiah or originally given to David or to Moses or, yea, to Paul or Peter? Again, a bit of information could be beneficial. You may wonder if we don't have them, what is the oldest manuscript we have? The oldest manuscript we have goes by this name. It's the Codex Vaticanus, dated in the 4th century A.D. Now, you may notice there's another one almost as old, also dated in the 4th century A.D., is the Codex Sinaiticus. Each of those does exist. In fact, they're housed in libraries in Europe. A third one, and these three complete our list of the oldest complete or near-complete Bibles, is the Codex Alexandrinus, 5th century A.D., again, just a short time earlier, or later, I should say, than the others. At this point, then, you may notice we're talking 4th or 5th century A.D., but yet the original scriptures were given sometimes quite a bit earlier than that. How trustworthy are those documents you and I now have we call the Bible? I've listed for you a few pieces of additional information. I chose to list somewhat about the Masoretes, who themselves labored a couple of hundred years after some of these matters, and these ancient Jewish grammarians took it upon themselves to attempt to preserve the fullness of the Hebrew Scriptures and do so by providing not only punctuation marks, which had not been done at least fully prior to that, but thus to maintain the integrity of those Scriptures. At the bottom of the slide, though, I could at least revisit that question that you may be quick to ask. If we do not have the original autographs, then how sure are we that this book is trustworthy? It claims to be a Bible. How do we know that it is trustworthy as such? I chose to present to you then a slide that in fact I hope will put to rest some of those concerns that you and I might have. Think with me about ancient documents and perhaps even certain ancient writers. You could mention Lucretius, Pliny, Plato. I know we've heard of Plato. We're familiar with him. In fact, writings, even school teachers, demand on occasion that the students in their classes acquaint themselves with the writings of Plato. You might even be quizzed over it, and the writings of Plato may appear in some particular English book or literature book. 
Would you please note in terms of Plato, he lived between 427 and 347 B.C. The oldest copy of anything Plato wrote is dated 1,200 years after Plato lived. And yet we read it in schools and our teachers invite us to note it's reliable. It's a document written by Plato. They assure us of that. And yet over a century elapsed between the time Plato wrote it and the oldest copy we've got. Proceed down that list, look at some other examples. The writings of Demosthenes and Herodotus and Suetonus. They may be less familiar, but they are regarded highly as ancient scholars and writers, sometimes historians. Thucydides and Euripides. Could I again point out quite often the writings of Euripides are emphasized, and notice the oldest copy of Euripides' writings we've got is 1,300 years after he wrote it. Now, I haven't emphasized that last column with numbers in it, but that, I hope, emphasizes something else. We only have worldwide nine copies of anything Euripides ever wrote. Nine. That's all we've got. And yet, we have confidence in the nine that that is a representation, faithful and true, of what Euripides wrote. Jump down near the bottom to Tacitus. We have 20 copies of something Tacitus wrote. And the oldest copy we've got is a thousand years after he wrote it. Now you and I well know that the longer the time span is between when the person wrote it and the oldest copy, that ought to generate the likelihood of greater uncertainty. Can you be sure the thousand years passed with faithful copies of that? This next slide continues that thinking like this. Would you consider Aristotle... As far as I know, one of the most highly regarded of the ancient writers, and our students are expected to read and memorize and learn, we have only 49 copies of anything Aristotle wrote. And the earliest copy we have is 1,400 years after he wrote it. Now, to my knowledge, nobody questions the authenticity of it, despite the fact it's nearly a millennium and a half after he wrote it. By now, you're probably wondering, let's get to the point of this. We aren't interested in the writings of Aristotle or Plato or these others, but would you look at the very last one, the New Testament? You and I know the New Testament was written by Paul and Peter and John and others in the first century A.D. We have over 5,600 copies or portions thereof of those New Testament writings. 5,600 that swamps, by way of number, any of the others that we've noted so far, and no one ever questions the writings of Plato. Not only that, look at the time period. Some of those earliest fragments that we have go back to less than a hundred years after the time it was written. If you and I then believe the writings of Plato, we must believe absolutely in the integrity of the New Testament appreciating that it does present and has been faithfully preserved as the original Word of God. So that when those who then revisited the Greek and translated it into English or, yea, other languages, we are able to handle today the Word of God, to appreciate that it is exactly what it claims to be. 
as you give thought to that particular set of slides, I thought it would be useful then to encourage in us a trustworthiness relative to the Scriptures that you and I now have. So indeed, that second question was, do the original documents still exist? No, they don't. But you and I can have the greatest of confidence in these translations that have been faithfully produced. What about question number three? It's also been asked relative to the translations. When a translation of the Bible is made, do the translators work from a previous translation or do they work from the original documents? Well, we've just answered part of this. The original documents no longer exist, so they can't go back to an original monogram of the book of Exodus, let's say, and produce a translation from Hebrew into English. They cannot do that. But however, I have asked you to note a few things on that slide. I think we'd all agree. If those original documents existed, it would be ideal to revisit them and to make from them a particular translation. But what you and I do know is that there are several factors that provide a bit of complication in light of the production of a particular translation. First of all, we've noted that there are sections or portions or at least seg segments of, of very old documents. Could I also point out some of those segments are housed very carefully in libraries and the public does not have access to them. In other words, though you might want to see in the Library of London that old copy, that access may be highly restricted and you may not be able to have access no matter how much you want it. That has been true at times in history. May I also point out, not only is access to the documents, those old ones that do exist, it's also true that sometimes time demands are critical. Let me share with you another one. When Constantine Tischendorf visited a monastery in the Mount Sinai region in the middle part of the 19th century, the monks that were living there, they had particular leaves of a very old document. They didn't know what the documents were, apparently. They were burning them in the fire to keep themselves warm. Tischendorf recognized that the writing on one of those documents was older than anything he had ever seen. He became so excited and he desired that he might have them before they destroyed them. They refused. His excitement so agitated them that they suspected something and they refused to give them to him. It would be over a decade and a half before on a return visit he was again able to see these old kinds of documents because one of the monks living there secretly had preserved them and offered them to him. Now at that time, he still was unallowed to take them, but he was allowed to at least recognize they were still there. Finally, he made access to them by way of the ruling monarch of Russia. See, the ruling monarch of Russia was friends enough with those who owned and operated that monastery that the king could, could request them. And so indeed he did. And Tischendorf was able to see them, and they were again older than any documents he had ever seen. But those scriptures were preserved. And ultimately, even Russia didn't appreciate them. They sold them to Great Britain, and they're now in, their, in the library in London. 
But doesn't it just give you an idea of how Tischendorf recognized something that others didn't? But isn't it a reminder that the time was not such that Tischendorf was given access to them? One final thing may be this. Sometimes the translators themselves were such that their knowledge was not as extensive as it might have been. Isn't it true that textual criticism has really gained a lot of force over the years and there's now a greater understanding in some ways? Those are at least three factors that have a bearing on what might be appreciated in terms of a final translation of the Bible. As you and I noted in a recent lesson, the King James translation, the American Standard translation of 1901, the English Standard translation, all of those are great translations. And you and I are thankful for those translations into English. All these questions tonight have surrounded in one way or another translations of the Word of God. I hope that at the very least they give us an impression about how blessed we are in the time in which we live and in the place we live to have the freedom of an English translation of the Bible. You may notice that when Brother Gilbert was here just last Wednesday night, he shared with us how that, again, there's such a demand for translations of the Bible into the language those people in Africa are able to speak in that place where he goes. They clamor for them. They try to, of course, produce them and have them sent over there. But isn't it a wonderful thing to have a translation in language you understand? And you and I are fortunate to have that in English. Tonight, as we reflect upon the Bible, and think about these issues concerning translations. Isn't it a sweet thing to not only contemplate the translation, but to contemplate that we can understand so readily what it teaches, such as the plan of salvation, such as the nature of worship and the nature of the final abode beyond death. We can understand all of that, and we can live our life in light of that information. Tonight, as you and I think about ourselves, it's one thing to have the Bible, but if we don't use it, if it doesn't impact us, if it doesn't influence us, if we don't follow what it teaches, then eternally that particular message, though beautiful it is, has not led me to do what I need to do. And the same would be true of you. That Word of God is a living, breathing document. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Hebrews 4, verse 12. In the lesson text read earlier tonight, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That is what you and I have. Have you obeyed it? Are you and I obeying it daily? If there's anyone in the assembly tonight who's reached that point in life where you realize you need to make a change, you need to become what the Bible would would state and describe you to be. We want you to know tonight we're honored to encourage you and to assist you. If you've never become a Christian, then tonight that decision that you could make and it could be finalized in just a few minutes, believe in Jesus with all of your being. He came to this planet being dispatched here from heaven and He came to pay a price for your sins and mine. Not only believe in Him, but repent of your sins. Turn aside from them, striving to commit them no more. 
make confession of His name and be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. Upon doing that, you then begin the Christian life. Your name is enrolled in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're a member of the church. And you can begin to put your tasks and your skills and your labor to work in the church of our Lord. At that point, though, if you stumble, if you begin to live a life of of habitual sin, you know Jesus still loves you. You may have walked away, but He still so much wants you to be back to a position of faithfulness. And tonight, if you would repent of those sins and make confession of them, we'd be honored, you see, to pray on, on, on your behalf. And we would, in fact, desire to do that. Brother Don has selected a hymn of encouragement. As you and I have thought about the translations tonight, I hope they motivate in us to have a love for the Word of God and appreciation that it is exactly that, the Word of God. If we could be of some help tonight to anybody, we encourage you and invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.